Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan, and the producer of our dope theme music. With our resident Zoomer and Hell and High Water co-creator Grace Weinstein, still MIA, we are going to try something a little bit different today. Rather than pressing Marshall and Megan into service again, although I have to say they did great last week, and rather than me prattling on endlessly, which you all unfortunately know is sort of my brand, we're going to do a twist on what business people apparently call a minimum viable product and give you today a minimum viable intro this week's episode. So listen, if you like it this way, short and sweet, please do let us know by hopping on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. Give us a five-star rating, duh, and then leave a comment saying yay or nay to the MVI concept. And hey, if the verdict is clear, we might even take it to heart because you know the motto here at Hell and High Water, right? The listener is always right, except when they're totally out to lunch. Now, Moving on to our MVI. Our guest on today's podcast is the fabulous Marie Brenner, writer-at-large at Vanity Fair and author of the tremendous new book, The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. Marie is one of the country's great investigative and narrative journalists, and her book is a typically ambitious, typically rigorous, typically prodigious piece of reportage in which she takes us behind the scenes and to the front lines of the New York Presbyterian hospital system starting in the early months of 2020 as New York Presbyterian grappled with the abject horrors and ungodly challenges presented by the COVID-19 pandemic at ground zero of the crisis in New York in those early days. Marie was given unprecedented access at New York Presbyterian for 18 months, conducted more than 200 interviews for the book, and that book is brimming with revelations, insights, and outrages, but more importantly, plenty of heroes, extraordinary acts of humanity, and causes for hope. Marie and I spent the lion's share of our time on the pod talking about the book and about COVID more broadly, but we also talked about her extraordinary career over more than 40 years in journalism, including her stint as the first female baseball columnist covering the American League, traveling with my beloved Boston Red Sox for the Boston Herald during the 1979 season. We talked about her work at Vanity Fair and two of my old magazine homes, The New Yorker and New York Magazine, and in particular about her amazing track record at writing vivid, rich, deeply reported features that are so cinematic that they, in fact, get turned into cinema. It was Marie who gave us the story of tobacco whistleblower Jeffrey Wigand that became the amazing Michael Mann film The Insider with Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. She also wrote a piece about Richard Jewell the security guard first hailed as a hero and then wrongly accused in the bombing at the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. That was later turned into a movie by Clint Eastwood. And she wrote the definitive piece about the death of fabled war correspondent Marie Colvin in 2012, later turned into a movie starring Rosamund Pike. Amazing stories all, and you will love hearing all of them, I believe, in particular our discussion of the incredible and dearly missed Marie Colvin. Last but not least, Marie Brenner was also the author of a devastating 1990 profile of Donald Trump in Vanity Fair that for a long time Trump said was the worst thing ever written about him. And that piece pissed him off so much that he approached Marie at a fancy shindig at Tavern on the Green in New York City and took his revenge in a way that I will leave to Marie to describe in this little taste of this week's podcast. He literally came up behind me. And I was like watching a horror movie where I saw people, I didn't even, it was a crowded black eyed dinner. He came up behind me and he literally poured a glass of wine 
down, you know, I was wearing a kind of a dinner suit down my back. I thought the waiter had spilled something because, of course, like everything with Trump, he's a coward. And so he wouldn't get in my face. He didn't even do that wonderful, you know, brute and throw the wine in my face. He then scurried out of the room as people's oh. mouths dropped in horror. And that was Trump. That's what he did. Red wine or white wine? It was white. So there you have it. Donald Trump being, well, a complete fucking asshole, i.e. being Donald Trump. And now, having heard that story, I double dog dare you not to want to stick around and hear the entire episode of Marie Brenner being Marie Brenner, an absolutely delightful, sharp, incisive guest in the finest tradition of Hell and I Water. Another day of fast-moving developments in this coronavirus emergency, and we will carefully get through it all right here with you tonight. We're going to begin with the states of emergency across this country, and now here in New York City, a state of emergency declared as well. And in New York, a ban on crowds of 500 or more, Broadway dark, concert halls and museums set to close. And that state of emergency here in New York City, the mayor reporting a major jump in cases today, 95 confirmed cases, saying there could be 1,000 in just a week. So that's David Muir at the very beginning of the COVID emergency. And we're here with Marie Brenner. Marie, good to see you. First of all, congratulations on the book. The book's called The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. The book is fantastic and is getting nice reviews. And it occurs to me that it sort of feels like just now people are starting to kind of have these conversations about, remember what it was like? We finally gotten just enough historical distance from the sheer weirdness and the panic and the fear and all of the stuff about those early months in New York that were so palpable then. And for a long time, we sort of couldn't talk about it. And now there's, it feels like enough distance that people are telling their stories about what it felt like. Do you remember yourself, how COVID entered your mind and what you thought and felt about it when it became the dominant fact of our reality? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, this happened after the 1918 pandemic too, John, that people compartmentalize. They don't want to think about trauma, so they push it out. And it's one of the reasons why we're sort of in this kind of societal PTSD moment we find ourselves in. In my own life, I was in the city. There were no masks to be had. The N95s at the local hardware store went from $20 a box at the end of February to about $200 a box by March the 5th. People were still very much out and around. We were going to theater, the subways were jammed. And what I discovered in the reporting of the book is that inside the hospital, New York Presbyterian, it's ranked as the number one hospital in the city. So you're in Mount Olympus. So these great doctors inside the hospital, many of whom were trying to alert the people in the hospital this is really going to be bad. Guys, we got to get tests going. There was a kind of a sense of panic in the emergency rooms and the academic hospitals all over the city because no one could get tested. So the David Muir clip is so interesting because this was already way late in the game, March the 12th, right. when the yeah. mayor declared that state of emergency. One of the things that your book shows is that, as you said a second ago, there were some people inside the hospital system who were like, guys, this is going to be a disaster. Those people were ringing the alarm bells. And then other people out on Mount Olympus, as you just called it, at New York Presbyterian, who were like ignoring their colleagues and saying, nah, it's going to be fine. We'll be okay. I find it kind of amazing that there was that much 
of a divergence within an institution as august and as revered as New York Presbyterian that like people who were ringing the alarm bell were being kind of shouted down within their own medical institution. Well, it's so interesting, John. You absolutely have that right. There is a divide in the hospital. This is all science and it's all good intentions. People were trying to figure it out. These are medical astronauts trying to discover what is the medical mystery about. How do they treat this thing? And they are getting hundreds of emails and texts every day from colleagues in Italy who are dealing with it on the ground in Milan. They're getting them from Seattle. They're trying to communicate with China. People are trading information about treatment. But more than that, just a tremendous revelation to me that is inside the hospital, there is a divide between the medical side and the corporate side. And not just at New York Presbyterian, but really in academic hospitals all over the city is that from the earliest days when the doctors couldn't get their patients tested, some of these doctors, like Matt McCarthy, who's one of the foremost experts in the country on bacteria, he went out on March the 3rd, having just been able to test patients in the Wild Cornell emergency room, and he went on Squawk Box, and he said, we are not prepared in New York City. This is March the 3rd. Only 32 people at that point, imagine, in the city had been tested, 32, because the city was still using the CDC guidelines and guidelines from the state which said you had to have been in Wuhan to get a test. So when he went out and he said, this is going to be a disaster in New York because we have to get people tested, By that afternoon, he had heard from the communications department of the hospital essentially shutting him down. The next day, on the corporate side, he was threatened with having his title as medical director of the Greenberg Pavilion, which is one of the floors at the hospital, taken away from him. And so this kind of mini war broke out in the hospital between the medical side, who really believes in academic freedom and felt that in a public health crisis, like clearly this pandemic was, the public had a need to know, and the corporate side, which was using standard disaster messaging guidelines like you would have used for Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy, saying, you know, we're going to speak in one voice. They use this term moral injury because many of these doctors who did try to warn the public or speak out, who were then shut down, really feel that their failure to be from inside Mount Olympus to speak to the public fed into this ultimate disinformation that was being fed by the leadership. But imagine it from their point of view. What doctor has ever had a course in medical school about what to do in a complete failure of the federal leadership? I call this the Battle of New York. It was like being in the Battle of Britain. But if you had had no Churchill there, I mean, you had doctors and hospitals that were competing against each other for masks. You had a failure at FEMA. There was so much chaos. You know, for me, this was like a three-act play. So just step back, Marie, step back for a second. You just laid out a whole bunch of threads. One of the things I most admire about your work, there's never a topic where you're like, ah, I'm afraid of biting off more than I can chew. You take on big, complicated topics with lots of corporate malfeasance and misfeasance, with a lot of ethical and moral dilemmas, with characters who are sometimes heroic, sometimes conflicted, sometimes villainous. 
this book has a lot of characters in it and you're following a multi-threaded narrative throughout the story of Presbyterian, which is, I have my own experiences with it. It's an extraordinary medical institution, but there's also all these cross currents and complexities. And I'm, I'm curious about from a reporter standpoint, when did you decide to do the book? Like, how did you first come at this beyond capturing the chaos of it and the crisis of it? What you thought you were doing when you started and then as you proceeded through what the story turned into as you got deeper and deeper into it? Well, John, I am a storyteller. For me, history is about personality. My mother used to tell me when I was growing up, if you can understand personality, you can understand any event in history. We came from South Texas, and there was no better place to focus on contrarian, yin-yang, nuanced, complicated personalities, that people are not one thing or another. So I am always drawn to people who are caught in the vice of circumstances in a crisis. Who are the people in the French resistance? Who are the people who hide the Jews in the basement? In a crisis, how do you get behind the scenes to sort of live in the skins of those who were actually in that crisis? And what was extraordinary about starting this book was the CEO of the hospital is a remarkable man named Steve Corwin, who is trained as a cardiologist at Columbia Presbyterian, which is now part of the New York's Presbyterian system. But he's also an amateur historian. Unlike any other hospital head, not only was he running ICUs in his days at Columbia, but he's also a voracious reader, an intellectual, who in the middle of the pandemic, as he's locked down in his apartment on East End Avenue, turned to his wife, who was a former ICU nurse he met when he was a resident at Columbia, and said, when this first surge is over, now this was a moment in New York where the sirens were just going constantly and there were orbs and people, bodies and pitchforks. It was absolutely like Hieronymus Bosch in the city. Uh, And he turned to her and he said, I want to get a reporter in to chronicle what we are going through for doctors and healthcare workers in the future. The hospitals that are so concerned with branding and potential litigation and public image, this is already almost unheard of. And so literally in June, when I began thinking about doing this, he was very open to the idea. In fact, it was almost his idea. Let's see if this can work. I really wanted to understand what is the personality that is drawn to a crisis? Who is the person in Brooklyn who will work three shifts? Who is that housekeeper who will come in, the daughter of the sugarcane worker, who will have a ritual before she goes into the ICU? I really wanted to find those stories and bring them to life. Well, one of the great things about the book is that you do, as you said, Marina, it was a Hieronymus Bosch painting a lot of ways in New York City. Just surreal the whole thing was. The sirens that were all night long, the people dropping people off in front of hospitals who were blue. The Central Park becoming a giant medevac station, the vanilla sky element of 6th Avenue at through Times Square, empty 24 hours a day for weeks on end. I mean, it was something you never thought you'd see and hope we never see again. In the middle of the book, you're talking about Dr. Corwin. He's the CEO of the hospital. There's also a COO of the hospital whose name is Laura Fariz. And as you were laying out some of the threads earlier, 
I don't want to be too reductionist about this, but a lot of the tensions do feel to me like kind of straightforward in the sense of science, business. On one side, the scientists. On the other side, the branding, marketing, money, green eye shade, the business side of the hospital. You're always so attuned to the nuances and the subtleties and the complexities of these things that it's not like, here's the black hat and here's the white hat. I don't want to go to that. But there does feel in some ways, like in this case, history's judgment of these people. And in the book, it feels like those who are on the sides of science look pretty good. And those who are on the side of traditional marketing, brand maintenance, all of the businessy stuff that's in the middle of our medical establishment in our privatized healthcare system in America, those people don't look great in this book. Even though you're not explicitly hammering them, you don't read them and think, oh, those are the admirable ones in this story. Am I oversimplifying, do you think? It was such a complicated situation because remember, this was a once in a century occurrence. This was a pandemic that we have not had since 1918. Uh, Dr. Fariz, who you mentioned, who is the COO, has probably the best training of any orthopedic surgeon ever had. Princeton Magna, everything she's done, she's excelled at. She's an extraordinary hospital administrator. And she's suddenly hit with regulations that are changing, coming from the government and from the state every hour sometimes because of state regulations and licenses that will be taken away from hospitals and threats. How do you do that? How do you do this when you are going to suddenly 2,500 patients at the end of March? How do you feed 35,000 hospital workers? So all of this was on her head. And there is a certain personality type that in the case of this gets rigid and goes by the rule book as opposed to let's think how maybe we don't want to shut down all communication. Maybe we do want our doctors out there speaking. Maybe we show more empathy to the people working in the back office. There was so much stress on the people running the hospital. Everyone was working 15, 20 hour days. And in the middle of it, by the middle of March, the end of March, when there was no relief coming from the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, about the hospitals possibly getting sued for malpractice or litigation. They were in a terrible situation inside all the academic centers in New York. It's fair to say, even if it's in your usual way, you're not going to say, here are the bad guys, here are the good guys. Although I will say some of the characters come off as behaving in pretty unpleasant ways. The heroes of this book are the frontline medical professionals. The book is a love song in some ways to the people who were willing to put their lives on the line in a situation of extraordinary stress, incredible risk, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and just be like, I'm going to be on the front lines of this. In a lot of cases at the beginning, denied masks of their own. I mean, in endless shifts with incredible pressure. I feel like one of the great takeaways from the book is they get their due in this book, the people who were heroes in that way. For me, being inside the hospital was a master class in humanity. John, it is extraordinary through every borough, through Brooklyn, through Queens, and the hospitals in lower Manhattan. The sacrifice, the creativity, the volunteerism of what so many people did, every class and cast that you can possibly imagine that make New York so great. The hospital is a theater. And within the hospital, there's always feuds and there's always arguments, there's disagreements, but there's a uniting about medical mission. They are really there to try to save lives. 
and to try to help people. And so, for example, you had in Brooklyn this extraordinary respiratory therapist who arrived in this country as the son of two refusenik Russian Jewish doctors who fled anti-Semitism. And he came in as a 16-year-old, wanted to become a doctor, obviously couldn't afford it, wound up as a respiratory therapist in the Brooklyn Hospital. And in the course of this was working 100 hours straight he invents what he called a face vacuum and it's now being sold all over the world and he wouldn't even take a patent for it. It's helping other respiratory therapists. There were people like this in every hospital in the city that was part of the New York Presbyterian group. And there was so much creativity and volunteerism. In one ICU at Weill Cornell, they would say things like, well, nothing is working, so we've got to try steroids. This was very early on. I right, think this was right. even before they first declared an emergency in the city. And there was so much argument and disagreement. No, steroids are counterindicated. It can make it work. There's data this. There's data that. What else are we going to do? And, of course, it worked. You know, another doctor in that ICU who had grown up in a barrio in Colombia wound up using a clamp for the first time and saving a woman who had been on a ventilator for four months. And now this has become a standard procedure. At one point, there was so little PPE that the hospital <laughs> ordered 600,000 scrubs and they came all mismatched and not sized. The academic deans of the medical school sat in the gymnasium of Columbia sorting out 600,000 scrubs, pairing them, medium, large, small. The greatest drama of life in New York. Michael Lewis wrote this book about the pandemic called Premonition. If you took one thing away from the book, it was America was more prepared than any country on earth in theory for a pandemic, and it performed not the worst, but relative to its level of ostensible preparedness, it was a catastrophe how we performed. And your mention of Cuomo throws another element into this. It was more discussed in real time. And then in retrospect is the failure of public institutions, the failure of government. I want to play a little bit of Andrew Cuomo just to remind people of what a daily presence he was in our lives. I think across the country that was true, but certainly in New York. This is a little bit of Cuomo. March 24th, he put out this little ad I would say self-serving COVID ad still pretty early in this crisis when Andrew Cuomo was really riding high as the kind of the alternative, the fact-based, tell it like it is, take charge alternative to Donald Trump. Let's listen to this. New York is the canary in the coal mine. What happens to New York is going to wind up happening to California and Washington State and Illinois. It's just a matter of time. We're just getting there first. The increase in the number of cases continues unabated. The apex is higher than we thought, and the apex is sooner than we thought. So he did those briefings every day, Marie. Even people who hated Andrew Cuomo were like, man, that guy's an asshole, but sometimes you need an asshole. That was the view. I'm certainly it was my view because I had reported on Andrew Cuomo for a long time, and I knew he was a megalomaniac, and I knew he was a bad human being, and I knew he was a thug and I knew he was a narcissist and I knew that all this was going to his head. You could see it happening in real time, but you also were like, okay, sometimes you need an asshole to confront bad scenarios. Turns out there's still a little bit of truth in that, I think, but there's also a whole other complicated story. And I'm curious from inside the hospital, 
how people were, were viewing Cuomo in real time, the image of Cuomo and the reality of Cuomo in real time. You're absolutely right. I mean, he never had a greater moment. He was an extraordinary leader. He became the Winston Churchill for that three-month period of the New York surge. He was so determined to get it right. I mean, we were all glued to that 11 a.m. briefing every day. That was the moment that we live for. And his number two assistant, the chic Melissa DeRosa, you know, whatever happened to them later, all the controversy that surrounded them, they were so prepared. I'm so glad you brought up Michael Lewis's extraordinary book, Premonition, because Michael gets it so right about this extraordinary, almost unknown world of pandemic modelers. And one of the doctors at New York Presbyterian is a modeler who was a mathematician, clinician, practicing in Lower Manhattan, named Nathaniel Hoopert, and he got it so right, spent all of January and February trying to warn the hospital what was coming. No one really paid too much attention to him except in some of the ICUs. All he wanted to do was get into the New York State Task Force with his modeling numbers, which were different from the ones that the governor was relying on that came from McKinsey. And he was able to, and he became part of the New York State Task Force. And so you had this three-week period up in Albany where there was what they called the Battle of the Modelers, where Cuomo had originally been told by the management consultants at McKinsey, you're going to have 140,000 cases, you're going to need 40,000 ventilators. This turned out to be catastrophically off. (laughs) And as other modelers from the University of Washington, from Imperial War College, are saying, no, 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 it's nothing like this. So you had this kind of frenzy up there where it was an absolute chaotic situation where people were trying to deal with the fact that you couldn't really model this thing because the information that was coming was inaccurate, whether it was coming from China, whether they were relying on CDC flu data, it was inaccurate information. It was something you couldn't model. And so the compelling for me, the compelling human drama to just get the stories of the people running that task force, Jim Malatras, who went on to be the chancellor of one of our great university systems, Mike Schmidt at 33, he was the youngest state tax commissioner New York ever had. He didn't know anything about pandemic modeling, but he was terrific with numbers. And so it's left to this group to assemble modelers who are going to tell the governor you're way off here. You can't keep using these huge numbers. This is going to cause catastrophic results as everyone is freaking out about there are not enough ventilators. There are not enough ventilators because that was part of the drama in New York. Every day you'd hear, we need 40,000 ventilators. We need comfort. We need ships to come in. And the hospitals were overwhelmed, but it peaked. So that's one of the marvelously interesting historical revelations of this. You think you know something on the third week of March that may turn out to be not what you know a month later. We're going to come back and talk more about Marie's great book, The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. But there's always a challenge to find the right transition from the, hey, you're here to talk about your book to, hey, let's talk about your career. And in the middle of all that, you said the words Mike Schmidt. There's a Michael Schmidt who works at the New York Times. 
But for people of Murray and my generation, we think about Mike Schmidt as a third baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. And you think that's a little bit out of left field for me to talk about Mike Schmidt from the Philadelphia Phillies. But it turns out I learned in the process of doing some research for this podcast. I do a fair amount about Murray Brenner before, but I did not know about your history covering Major League Baseball. So we're going to take a break right now, and then we're going to come back on the other side, and we're going to talk about your career. So we'll be right back with Murray Brenner here on Hell Hot Water. So we're back with Marie Brenner, author of this fabulous new book, The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Frontlines, which you must, if COVID meant anything to you, <laughs> you want to read this book. And it's an incredible tale, both of COVID and heroism and some corporate jiggery pokery and the spirit of New York City. Marie, I kind of started earlier making the point that if you look at it all, there's a bunch of themes and motifs that emerge from the kind of reporting you do and the kind of characters you're drawn to and the kind of stories you like to tell. And to kick that off, I'm going to play from the insider. Here's Al Pacino playing a, another journalist, Lowell Bergman, at 60 Minutes and the Great Tobacco story of Jeffrey Wigand that Marie wrote about in Vanity Fair, then turned into this movie. Let's listen to Lowell Bergman give a speech in the insider. You pay me to go get guys like Wigand to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits, he talks. He violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement. And he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on the limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. That piece, when you wrote it in Vanity Fair, it was called The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Jeffrey Wigand story. And people have been trying to crack the tobacco story and the whistleblower story for a long time. And that piece came out and everyone read it. We're like, man, this is the story. The movie's brilliant. But everything in that story is like all the stuff you're interested in. There's the corporate element. There's a media element. All the characters are shades of gray. No one's really a hero. No one's fully a villain. Well, there are a couple of real villains, but mostly everyone's complex and conflicted and ambivalent and they behave well and badly, sometimes at the same time. I don't want to overread it, but I do feel like that if you if thought about all the things you've done over the course of your estimable career, the kernel of it all is kind of in that story that piece. Am I wrong? Again, am I overreading? Oh, no, I that is so right. That is, John, until you played that clip, that never occurred to me. But it's such a similar situation of what was happening inside the hospital, because I'm always so drawn to the thwarted emotions, that tangle of complexity, all that sort of gray area. And what do you do if you are Lowell Bergman, a very complicated character, like so many of the people inside the hospital while this pandemic was going on? They're trying to do their best, but they're thwarted, they're muzzled, they're gagged, and they have to focus on their patients. They have to rely on each other to figure this thing out. The hospital situation and being behind the scenes at New York Presbyterian, I have to say, it's been the most extraordinary reporting experience of my career because they are not comfortable with speaking. At a certain point, about eight 
months into the reporting, I was feeling this weird Alice in Wonderland kind of atmosphere. You know, people were sort of half talking to me. They were nervous. They were sort of thinking, was I sent by the hospital? What is this? They signed contracts that say they are not allowed to speak publicly without getting clearance from the communications office. At one point, an academic dean at Columbia, probably one of the most well-known, celebrated people, the inventor of bioethics guidelines, he burst out in his office, well, you know, there's a gag order in this hospital, which I had no idea about when I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, you know, I got in touch with Dr. Corwin and I said, you know, this is Alice in Wonderland. And he said, give me a list of who you want me to call and I will call them and reassure them that this yeah. is how much he cared about getting an accurate version of what happened behind the scenes. And literally, he probably made 15 or 20 calls to doctors to people saying, you're not going to be fired. We want an accurate account. And look, I mean, God knows that anybody who's done any amount of reporting of this kind, you can't get it done on any of these stories without people who are advocating for you. Even in the situations where there's most institutional resistance to the truth or institutional resistance to journalists covering it, there's always people who are, for one reason or the other, sometimes self-interested or sometimes because they really care about history and accuracy. There's people who are there who you would never be able to get the work done without them. And I guess my question is that to go back to your career a little bit here, you're from Texas. After going to, to UT at Austin, you get up to NYU for graduate school. I want to get to the baseball thing right now because at 30 years old, if I if my math is right, you become the first female baseball columnist who ever covered the American League and you're traveling around with my beloved Boston Red Sox. How did that happen? Oh, you're a Boston Red Sox fan. I had oh, no yes. idea. This is so, oh. Red Sox, oh, Red, Sox Red Sox and the Dodgers. I'm from LA. I hated the Yankees so much as a child that I was like, who's the American League team who's most anti-Yankees? The Red Sox, I'm for them. And it stuck. <laughs> oh, well, it's a kind of a wonderful story. I was living in London at the time. I was struggling as a freelance foreign correspondent doing any assignment I could. And one day I get a call from a tabloid editor, fantastic crusty guy named Don Forst, who had just been given a Boston tabloid called the Herald Examiner. And he said, I have news for you. The Supreme Court, are they going to let women in the locker room of major league sports? And I had so little interest in this. And I said, well, yeah, so Don, he said, you know, you're beginning to talk funny, like one of those crazy expats. He said, I need you back here to travel with the Boston Red Sox. It's a Don, we don't have Major League Baseball where I grew up. You know, I've really never been to a Major League Baseball game. There's this kind of dead silence on the phone. And he said, oh, you'll have a fresh eye on the sport. So yeah. back I came to Boston in the season of 79. Carl Yastrzemski, Jim Rice. Boston was still bruised by a, a huge loss to the Yankees. Remember Bucky effing sure. Dent, you know, the Bucky Dent home run over Mike Torres that went out of Fenway and that was the end of their hopes and dreams for 78. So I come into this team that, you know, is probably the whitest and in retrospect, most racist fan base that you could ever imagine. One of my early columns was why are there no blacks at Fenway Park? That was what I kind of walked into. And it was, again, a remarkable experience. Of I'm, sure that column, 
I'm sure that collar made you really popular in uh, in, uh, in Boston. That's like one of those things that the Bo- the Bostonians love to have their racism called out, especially in that era. Did you come out of that job thinking I love baseball, or was it just like basically an exercise in reportage and anthropology? Well, a lot of different things happened. I met my first husband and my daughter's father in the press box of Yankee Stadium on an 11-game road trip. He, like you, is a Red Sox aficionado and helped me understand the culture in a way that was really quite profound. So I came out of it, yes, an absolute Boston Red Sox fan completely and, you know, all, all the more so. Good. Pleased to hear that. You passed the first test, the first real test of the podcast today. <laughs> the I think Heilman, about also, the Heilman test. That's right. It's the Heilman test. Um, I think about, you know, your career in that you were at New York Magazine for a while. You were at Vanity Fair. You went to The New Yorker. You came back to Vanity Fair. It's funny. I, my editor at New York Magazine for a long time, John Homans, who was famous in the business and passed away unexpectedly in the middle of the pandemic. His wife much later had a memorial service for him like last fall in the fall of, of 2021 and sitting there over on the Bowery amid all of these grandees of what was once the magazine business. I had this moment where I was talking to Adam Moss. I was like, this would be a great set piece for a story about the death of the American magazine dream. All of these people around who edited these great grand titles. And Adam was like, yeah, that'd be great. Except who would read it? Where would you publish it? There's no magazine left to run that piece. And I think of you as working in the apex of the most glorious moment of the great magazine era, working for the great magazines of the era, for the great editors of the time. I have my own little taste of this, but like I feel looking back on it, so lucky to have been able to work in those places when there was space and money and the ability to go do big, ambitious pieces, which are so limited now, those opportunities. When you think back about it, how do you kind of contextualize the luck of someone with your ambition and your interest, the way you report, the way you write, happening to come along at a time when there was a big, thriving, wide open field for that and market for it. And ambitious editors who would say, Marie, go take a year, take nine months, take your time and write the 20,000 word piece. Yeah, I just feel we are so lucky. We are so lucky to be storytellers and particularly in what is now being called the golden age of magazines where you could do that. You could literally fly to Montreal to interview someone that was just going to be one small chip in uh, in a seven or eight month or nine month reporting project. You could, you know, some of my magazine stories, I would interview a hundred people, 80 people, 90 people, the expense accounts, the flying off for weeks at a time. The idea that, you know, you're actually on the ground doing that kind of reporting where you are in people's lives. You remember John Gregory Dunn famously said, my style of reporting is I like to hang around. And sometimes (laughs) I hang around for weeks at a time, you know, can you imagine someone saying, oh, I'm just going to go hang around now for weeks at a time. Well, and you think about, I remember having a, a lunch one day with the group of people at New York Magazine with Richard Ben Kramer, who wrote What It Takes. And Richard was telling the story of doing his famous William Donald Schaefer, governor of Maryland, a profile on Esquire, great piece. And he talked about how he did it. He's like, I basically would go to people and say, let me hang around with you off the record for two or three months and not report anything. Just let's just spend some time together. I'll just shadow you for a few months. And if you eventually get comfortable, we'll then work on a piece. Schaefer said, sure. And he spent all day, every day with him for three months. And eventually a moment came where Schaefer was like, okay, I trust you now. Let's do this story. And by then he was so far in that he could write this incredible thing on the basis of how intimate the access was. Forget about the economics of our business. Public figures now, as wised up as they are, no one would ever agree to that. And Ben Kramer would say, 
you can't do a piece until you get to the point where with your subject, you can say, we're building this boat together. That was his phrase. Like no one does journalism that involves building boats together with anybody now. That's just not, it's so transactional and so superficial in most cases. Almost every profile now is just about, hey, I got to have lunch with the guy for one day, one afternoon at the Chateau Marmont. That's the profile, you know, it's just kind of like so terrible. Yes. And that's why I think that so many who are, are graduates of the golden age of magazine school of journalism, we're all off now doing books. I mean, and this was yeah. the case in the desperate hours. I had that luxury. I mean, it took a year to find the cast of this, the 20 who embody New York City going through this drama because you can't just waltz into a situation and find those people who not only in some way bring what this crisis was about to life, but also have a relationship with each other that becomes a story, right. and because this is storytelling. You wrote this story, a famous story about Donald Trump at Vanity Fair in 1990. That was called After the Gold Rush. He said this was the worst piece that had ever been written about him by anybody. He complained about it in one of his books. I believe it was the piece where you reported that he had Mein Kampf on his bedside table or the speeches of Hitler or somehow that's like where that world order, the speeches, right. Mm -hmm. right. Where that was the first time that ever got out in the public. And then we have Tina Brown, who has told the story of a subsequent event at Tavern on the Green, where she claims that Donald Trump came up and poured wine down the back of your dress. I believe he was so mad mm -hmm. about this piece. A, is that all true? And B, please tell the story in your own words. Oh, absolutely. It's completely true. We all knew in New York, I mean, because we've been covering him for years, that he was a sadist. He was a grifter. He absolutely had no morals. And this was, again, another one of those long hang around stories that took months and months and months to do where, you know, I spoke to 70 or 80 people and put together a narrative called After the Gold Rush of Trump falling apart, going into debt, his marriage to Ivana falling apart, but also a lot of his backstory, a lot of the complexity. And I had covered him before at New York Magazine and had really seen him in full flower. But in those days, when he was still a kind of semi-charming real estate developer, there was a kind of sense of humor, almost self-parody around the grifting that almost became a kind of like a vaudeville comedy show that had then later, obviously, very serious implications as he became darker and darker figure. So, as you say, he hated this piece and went out with Barbara Walters, who was anchoring in ABC then, you know, she had my story on her lap and said, you know, Donald, did you really tell Ivana that women are just to do this, that, and the other two? And did you do this? And he said, oh, no, these are all lies. And, you know, Marie Brenner is a dreadful liar, has terrible problems with men. You know, she's a dog, you know, the, the kind of stuff that then we saw later in 2016, yeah. when he would take on Megyn Kelly, where yeah. people were still out of New York City, where we understood that behavior, they still were getting to know who is this figure who would say to a Megyn Kelly, you're bleeding out of every side of you, and then go after the Muslim gold star father. And, you know, yeah, right. You know, sure. They were getting to know that person. Yes. But we knew that person. And yeah. that was the person who at a Parks event 25 years ago, let's not date, like, I mean, he literally came up behind me 
and I was like watching a horror movie where I saw people I didn't even it was a crowded black eyed dinner. He came up behind me and he literally poured a glass of wine down you know, I was wearing a kind of a dinner suit down yeah. my back. I thought the waiter had spilled something because of course, like <laughs> everything with Trump, he's a coward. And right. so he wouldn't get in my face. He didn't even do that wonderful, you know, brute and throw the wine in my face. He then scurried out of the room as people's oh. mouths dropped in horror. And that was Trump. That's what he did. Red wine or white wine? It was white. White wine. Well, that's, that's kind been, of it's been It's been called red, but it's yeah. been white. And it I wish white. I still had that suit. You oh know, I, I wish I had kept it. But what, what you could auction that off for, for charity and, <laughs> and make a killing the New York Presbyterian no, it, system. It became, it became like my personal badge of honor. You know, right. it became sort of like one of the greatest things that ever happened to me as a reporter in retrospect. Totally fantastic. And in the modern era, of course, someone would have caught it on their cell phone camera and it would have been on Twitter and we all be able to watch it. It would have been a part of the 2015, 2016 Trump. Oh, there's that time when he poured that glass of wine down Marie Brenner's dress. It's fantastic. I'm so it's so Trump. Every part about that story is so totally Trump. It's one of those things that contributed, unfortunately, to the aura of a lot of people that were like, the man is way too ridiculous to take seriously because the behavior was so not just obnoxious and hateful, but also buffoonish that people were like, eh, we don't have to really worry about what will happen because he'll never be president. And of course, we all know what happened after that. I, I do want to come back. So the, the insider, right? You write the story on Wygand in 96, and then you write the story about Richard Jewell in 97. Now, I don't know how many people, again, in the history of our business, who've had stories in two consecutive years that both were not merely optioned, but were made into major American motion pictures. The Richard Jewell one took a lot longer, but you were like on a hell of a run there with adaptable pieces of long-form journalism. I want to just play this Richard Jewell clip from the movie that Clint Eastwood made. It came out in 2019. It did not get as much attention as I think it might have given the incredible cast in it, Sam Rockwell and, and John Hamm and others, but it's a very strong and very interesting movie. Paul Walter Hauser, who plays Richard Jewell, the guy at the Atlanta 1996 Olympics who said that there was a bomb threat was then accused of being the bomber and then turned out not to be the bomber. It's a complicated story like a lot of Marie's stories. He's ultimately exonerated. This is a speech that Richard Jewell gives in a little bit in the Lowell Bergman mode where he gives to federal law enforcement who've been kind of chasing him and were, I believe, the source of a lot of the accusations. They were leaking stories to the press about the fact that he was in their crosshairs. He's mad at them. Here's Richard Jewell. Let's hear what he had to say. I used to think that federal law enforcement was just about the highest calling a person could aspire to. And I'm not sure I think that anymore, you know, not after all this. I did my job that night and some people are alive because of that. But do you think that the next time some security guard sees a suspicious package that he or she's going to call it in? I doubt it, you know, because they're going to look at that and they're going to think, I don't want to be another Richard Jewell, so I'm just going to run. Does that make anybody any safer? So there's a lot of similarities, I think, between the insider and the Richard Jewell story, right? There's power in play, interesting characters, high degree of personal stakes and drama, moral ambiguity, and there's also a component of the media. Just talk about that story and what attracted you to it. I'm just curious your take on all of that, Marie. I was so drawn to Richard's plight. He was heartbreaking. We spent a lot of time together 
the moment I read that he had been falsely accused by the FBI or investigated, he was never really indicted. He was really investigated and his life turned upside down. I immediately called down to Atlanta. I mean, again, this was a case where my editor, Graydon Carter, who's got such a great sense of story, he called me up and in his inimitable voice said, Toots, this Richard Jewell guy, he's got your name. He's, your name is on this. Get down to Atlanta. At which I did, and I was so touched that he agreed to let me spend all that time with him. We rode around in his pickup truck, we went to this small town where he used to be a security guard at this little local college. I met his mother, Bobby Jewell, spent a lot of time with her, and I got to know their world. It's a question of really trying to understand how someone exists in their world, how they get caught up in these circumstances. And it just profoundly moved me. And particularly there was a relationship that he had that hadn't really been reported on, that he was very close to a lawyer who had grown up in the Atlanta Country Club world, a lawyer who had never had too much success named Watson Bryant. And Watson Bryant, who looked like a preppy, complicated family history, he wound up saving Richard from the FBI. He saves the Bubba boy. He's this guy from the Atlanta Country Club who's never really had a success in a law firm. It's kind of a one-man contrarian libertarian. These characters were so irregular that it was like you were reading a, an epic novel. So that was thrilling to work on as a story, and it was bought several times. But you know, after The Wolf of Wall Street, when I saw Jonah Hill, I called up my agent and I said, my God, Jonah Hill was born to play Richard Jewell. It became then picked up by Warner Brothers and he didn't wind up playing the part, but Clint Eastwood began circling around it very early on because Eastwood, obviously a legend, is drawn to this kind of contrarian situation as well. And ultimately, he made a very, very good movie. And Billy Ray, the marvelous screenwriter, had wanted to do this from the beginning. And that beautiful clip you just read, that's pure Billy Ray. He writes with his heart. He got Richard, who died quite young, and he never got to spend time with him, but he got Richard, he just got him, the essence of his personality. The movie was beautiful. What happened was, it's a sort of a complicated story. It came out right in the middle of canceled culture. And uh, Olivia Wilde plays an Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter. And Eastwood, he just took a dramatic license with the part that was just so out of sync with where the culture is about women reporters and professional women. and. You know, Warner Brothers had questions about it. I had questions about it. All the women involved in the movie had questions about it, but Eastwood made the movie he wanted to make. And so it, it sort of got into a bit of a buzzsaw of canceled culture. Right. So to be clear, the character that Olivia Wilde plays basically in the movie does something that never happened in reality, which is kind of uses sex to get the story 
A, it didn't happen, not in your original reporting, nor do I believe in reality. It's no world in which I think Marie Brenner would have signed off on that portrayal of a female reporter. It's a problem, right? It's a problem with the movie, and it was part of why the movie didn't find the audience. There were people in the journalism business in general who were upset about that because it was not like a small tweaking of reality to bending of history to the purpose of narrative. It's a real person. The reporter who was... It was that character was based on a real person. She had also, I believe, passed away and couldn't really defend herself. So there were a lot of things, a lot of things that were problematic about it. But I say this only because I think there's another issue. I assume The Insider is a movie you must, you cannot not love The Insider. It's one of the great movies. Michael Michael Mann and Eric Roth. I mean, you know. It's genius, right? It's genius. They took reporting and they morphed it into art. And we spent a lot of time together. Michael Mann and Eric Roth are extraordinary researchers. And they have a method of working where they have to understand every nuance of character. And I assume it changed your life in a positive way. Russell Crowe won the Academy Award, I believe, for Best Actor, or was nominated. I can't remember which. uh, He was nominated. He Mm -hmm. was nominated. They were, I think, nominated for seven Academy Awards. It it was uh, uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director for Michael Mann. It's a great movie, and it's a great movie about corporate malfeasance and about journalism, really, about 60 Minutes. Very tough on 60 Minutes, a thing that you were not afraid to be. I would say Don Hewitt does not come off great. The king of 60 Minutes does not come off that great, as played by Philip Baker Hall. Part of, I think, why it worked, Marie, was that, you know, your piece comes out in 96, the movie's out in 99. Like, the proximity to the story gave it a kind of currency. Now, again, there were problems with the Clint Eastwood version of the Richard Jewell story, but it's also, the story happened in 1996, you reported it in 1997, and the movie comes out in 2019. It doesn't have to be, you know, real-time reportage in a movie, but man, if it gets that far away on a story like that, it's harder for it to hit home when the thing feels like it's ancient history most people in America don't even remember there was an Olympics in Atlanta in 1996, let alone that there was a bombing thing. You know, you're probably right, but the dilemma of the false accusation had such resonance yeah. when it came out in 2019, the kind of Twitterocracy and people who would go after you and it's a lie. The moral center of that movie has such resonance for where we are now, you know, false information, the Kafka moment that was then and it is certainly now. We're gonna take one more break and then we're gonna come back and talk a little bit more about COVID and talk a little bit about the third of the big motion pictures that were made out of a Marie Brenner story, the one that you wrote about Marie Colvin, the famous war correspondent. We'll come back after the break and we'll do both those things here with Marie Brenner on Hell in the Water. And we're back here on Hell and High Water for the third and final part of our episode today with Marie Brenner, the author of The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. And Marie, I said we were going to go back to talk more about the book and talk more about COVID generally once we return from that trip down memory lane through your career. And while we were on that trip down memory lane, of course, we encountered Donald Trump. It's like maybe my favorite part of the entire episode so far. But we're going to talk about Trump again right now as we get back to COVID. And look, we talked about Cuomo before. He was one of the dominant figures in the early part of the pandemic for all of us. And the other dominant figure, I was going to say for better or worse, but really just for worse, was Donald Trump. And if you're thinking about the worst (laughs) You can't actually fucking believe this really happened. The president of the United States in the White House briefing room during the period of time when he was almost every day doing a briefing. And I believe after this, they stopped. They were like, you can't do these anymore. This is a very, very infamous clip. Donald Trump talking about bleach. And we'll talk about all of the implications of that on the other side. Let's take a listen. Supposing we hit the body 
with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who could. right. And then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So that's Donald Trump, the man who poured white wine down Marie Brenner's dress in the early 1990s. Now, in that clip, President of the United States in April 24th of 2020, maybe the craziest shit that Trump ever said about COVID. He was so crazy that when he said it, even people in the White House were like, you have to stop doing briefings, sir, because you are you're doing yourself no good politically. Now, I ask you, Marie, because I'm going to play Joe Biden in a second, a more recent vintage on this topic. In the hospital in New York Presbyterian, the subject of your book, The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. What were people in the hospital thinking when they saw Donald Trump talk about fighting COVID by ingesting bleach? Oh, John, I'm so glad you asked me this and brought this up because this is the madness, the anti-science madness that was being tipped in the pandemic, which has in the last two years has gone into the stratosphere and inside the hospitals. There was a moment where a hematologist in Brooklyn, Dr. Cook, was in the staff room when this came on and the doctors were watching it and he began shouting in the staff room, what the hell is this? They would have meetings, you know, the doctors in the middle of the pandemic when they're literally intubating patient after patient, and they would have staff meetings where they were so destabilized by the fact that from the top of the government, from the president of the United States, you were getting insanity, anti-science craziness, where Dr. Fauci looked like a captive in those press briefings. Deborah Burks, in that particular press briefing, she was staring at her shoes. Remember, she could hardly look up. And you know, she's a very diffident woman. She later wrote in her book about this moment that her heart was pounding. What can you say about this moment? Again, I keep going back to this idea that doctors are trained to digest all of the newest data and somehow then interpret it for their patients. They are not trained to digest nonsense, craziness, conspiracy theories, and have to refute it. No medical school gives a course on how you deal with charlatans who are peddling this stuff and how to cope with it as a medical professional. Later, the historians are going to go back and look at this period and not be able to understand the split screen reality of what was going on in the best medical institutions and what was going on in leadership. Yes. The reality is that among the things that made Joe Biden president of the United States that allowed him to defeat Donald Trump in 2020 was the fact that people looked at Trump and said, man, this is a catastrophically ill-equipped commander in chief not just unable to meet the moment, but someone who actually is affirmatively making things worse through his mismanagement, stupidity, madness, all of that. And Joe Biden was like, okay, this guy will be solid, safe, sane. He will help us get out of this hole. 
Now, here we are. It's the summer of 2022. And I will ask you in a second how you rate Joe Biden. We're now all moving forward. And part of the purpose of doing a book like this is a little bit about the historical record, but it's also about helping us to reflect on what we might take away from that experience that will help us to deal with the next one better. And one of the things it gets into is the discussion of Joe Biden. Here's Joe Biden marking the dark milestone of 1 million American lives lost to COVID. This was back in May. Today, we mark a tragic milestone here in the United States. One million COVID deaths, one million empty chairs around the family dinner table, each irreplaceable, irreplaceable losses, each leaving behind a family, a community, forever changed because of this pandemic. Around the world, many more millions have died. Millions of children have been orphaned, and with thousands still dying every day, now is the time for us to act, all of us together, we all must do more, we must honor those we have lost by doing everything we can to prevent as many deaths as possible. No mention of bleach there, perfectly sane, perfectly sober. When you listen to that, you think, you know, Joe Biden's got his problems, but like you compare that to Donald Trump and you think, come on, there, there's so much that separates them in terms of just basic competence, decency on top of it in this. And the situation with COVID is still, we're not past the pandemic, but there's been obviously a lot of progress over the course of the last two years. And yet a lot of people look at Biden and think hasn't done enough. They don't give him real credit. Talk to me, Marie, about the Biden of it and where we are now. I think Joe Biden expected to get more credit for what he's done. And he may deserve more credit than he's gotten, but he's not gotten very much. Again, this is another great question. We are a country of red states and blue states, very sadly. We are no longer, it seems, and particularly on health issues, the United States. In the center of America, in the ICUs, people are dying of COVID and they still don't believe that COVID exists because of the disinformation that has circulated in large part because of the federal response in 2020 and in large part because of what went on in the White House, the madness in the White House where Donald Trump used to say, this will go away, we'll be all back together by Easter, this is nothing worse than the flu. But again, it's a question of complexity. Trump also brought in Operation Warp Speed, which gave us the vaccines. We understand that Trump on the one hand said, okay, here's the billion plus and we're going to get these vaccines on warp speed. And then he became an anti-vaxxer, although he did get a vaccination. So we have been living in a chaotic state. The countries that have done the best, we know from reporting, are those the countries that followed a uniform health code that the countries got vaccinated, they locked down, they wore masks, they did what you were supposed to do. Those countries have had the lowest deaths, the lowest fatalities. We are a country of contrarians. We are a country of don't tread on me. So you can't get Americans to come together to understand this is a health crisis and in a public health crisis, you have to behave in a uniform way to fight a pandemic. And that's why we can't get this thing to go away and we're gonna be fighting it. At the moment, we're all worried about BA4, BA5. There's been a lot of headlines about this, but right now in America, 
the virus is in a weaker state. So inside the hospitals in America, although there's a huge rise in Europe, they're saying unless there is a mutation of this virus, which is about a 40% chance, if you're vaccinated and if you take certain precautions, it's not as virulent as it was in 2020. So I don't think anyone can really call it right now. I mean, we have done a lot of things. Biden has brought in, for example, in the CDC, there's a, a whole new pandemic modeling group, a kind of like a weather forecasting group. In America, we have not taken modeling as seriously as they take it in England, where like literally the pandemic modelers are part of the British government. They sit at the table. They're respected. In America, we don't really respect this. So you get this battle of information of even people who know things. So there's a lot to be done. Well, one of the things I think is so fascinating is that at the moment when the administration was trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible, it made a decision to say, essentially, go get vaccinated, you won't get sick. And that was, at the time, was a slightly risky thing to do because a lot of people in the scientific world said, yeah, you know, that's really not probably right. It's probably going to be a thing we're going to live with for a very long time. And the reason that you want to get vaccinated is that it will help you not get sick, won't guarantee you won't get sick, but it will mean that if you get sick, you won't end up dead or have a much smaller probability of ending up dead. But that would have been a messy message. And there are people around Biden who say, you know, Man, we, we decided to push the strongest message we could, but it gave people the impression that if we went out and got our shots, we could never get COVID again. And then there was this backlash where people were like, wait, I got my shots and I'm still getting this new variant. I got COVID. It's amazing the number of people who have not taken the what would have been the right view, which is, hey, you know what? Like, if, if this has just become the flu, that's a win. Instead, they're like, somehow Joe Biden oversold the vaccine, the government lied to us, and but has fed into that red-blue. Yeah, I know it's easy to say this is a big pharma issue and big pharma is dictating yeah. what the government is going to say, but we're in a medical mystery. So I look at it, and I think a lot of doctors and epidemiologists look at it as it's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of data that you knew yesterday may change today that this yeah. is that we are learning that the vaccines aren't as effective on the long term as they thought they were going to be even a, two years ago we are learning that they have to be constantly updated it's a constant learning experience but you know what i take away from all of it is yeah. that inside the great academic centers and certainly at new york presbyterian and the hospital i studied there is this extraordinary triumph of the human spirit. There are people who are so mission driven, you know, and it's the same kind of people who helped us win World War II. It's the same people who are in the French resistance. As the elite are panicking and running away and making sort of venal projections of what people are going to do, underneath, there are people who are helping other people figure things out. There is this mission driven, decency that gets us through crises it's for me the great teachable moment to you know trust each other to to get us through it's the thing that i think comes through most strongly in the book and i wonder if you think just quickly before i get on to marie colvin do you think that the people at new york presbyterian that they feel as though beyond the triumph of the human spirit and all that sort of stuff 
Are people systematically mining the experience of the pandemic for lessons? What Marie has done for a normal reader in this book lets us go back and really do an after action report on what happened here, what we got right, what we got wrong, what we can do better next time. Is that happening in a systematic way at New York Presbyterian and other places like that, to your knowledge? Oh, sure. Everywhere. There have been immense studies. There have been articles in Lancet. There have been long things. But, you know, this is this is classic. This is like the CDC is constantly doing these kind of things. And it goes into sort of bureaucratic file drawers, because, again, when you're dealing with a once in a century occurrence, you are back to emotion-based behavior. You are back to people relying on what they know. Some people are very empathic. Some people sure. are taking three shifts a day. Other people are playing by the rule book. The so-called lessons learned, is any lesson really learned? You know, what you learn yeah. is you have to rely on one another. I agree with that. I just, I guess all I mean is, A, this particular virus is not going away. And, and we know that there will be more mutations. It's endemic now. Hopefully never again pandemic, but it's endemic. We're going to live with it for a long time. And there will be other pandemics. And so to go back to the Michael Lewis thing, at least you would like to think that in the future, we could not do the same thing we did before, which was to be the most prepared country for a pandemic and then finish 37th in the world in terms of our performance, in terms of meeting it, that there could be some kind of systematic steps taken to make sure that didn't happen again. Oh, and there have been. In New York Presbyterian, they have brought in the epidemiologist Jay Varma, who helped run, you know, disease control in New York, to set up their own version of the CDC. They put about five or ten million dollars into this, where they're having their own modeling teams, because as we know now, you know, so well documented, the CDC fell apart in this situation, particularly on the testing kits and what happened with the testing. We lost so many weeks and in New York, thousands of people died because they couldn't get tested. They didn't know what they had. The CDC guidelines were were so rigidly and, and so wrong. And, you know, you couldn't get tests from the WHO, good tests. This is all going to be examined for years. And the hospitals who can afford it, which very few hospitals can, but certainly the academic institutions can, are going to now have their own version of a public health, which runs differently from standard medicine, because public health is not about treating patients. It's about preventing catastrophe. And so the hospitals who are going to afford it are going to have their own miniature CDCs that they are going to rely on in the future. Now, I said I wanted to close, for anybody who doesn't know, Marie Colvin was one of the most legendary war correspondents of our time, or probably any time, who died in 2012 in Homs in the middle of the Syrian civil war at the time, at a minimum sort of targeted by by Bashar al-Assad when they decided that the Syrians would just open fire on journalists on a regular basis. And Marie, after having been writing for the Sunday Times and, and reporting for basically every television network on earth for many, many years, having suffered in Sri Lanka, having had lost an eye, giving her the glamour of an eye patch that she wore for the last 10 years of her life, decided to go into Homs and into harm's way almost on what a lot of people around her thought was a suicide mission and ended up being the thing that cost her her life in 2012. She then got a posthumous story written about her by one Marie Brenner. The story was in 2012. You wrote it. It was called Marie Calvin's Private War. Katrina Heron, the former editor at Wired Magazine and a person I think who edited you at some point, maybe in an earlier incarnation, very close friend of mine at the time. And I got to meet Marie Colvin through Katrina back in those days. So I had a, like a tangential connection to her and understood the glamour and also understood some of the idiosyncrasies and some of the darker demons that drove her. And man, I, I will say 
Marie Brenner that I'm a student of long form magazine journalism. And so often the stories that one reads and even the best at the, in the golden age of magazines, they put a third dimension gloss on basically a two dimensional story that kind of pretend to be a three dimensional version of a story. There's a lot of those stories that have run a vanity fair, the New Yorker, all these estimable magazines that we love and have worked for where it's like, you know, with a few details and a few narrative twists, it kind of gives you a sense that you're a little deeper than what you would get in a newspaper obituary. Your piece on Marie Colvin was like, I'm going to do 3D here. It was the full wrap your arms around the complexity of a human being and try to get it down on the page. And that is a big, a hard task to take on. But the story was so rich and painted the portrait of this woman as an incredible hero and also as a really troubled human in a deep, deep way. I don't know anybody ever wrote about Marie or really about war correspondence in general in a better than that piece that you wrote. So I've never told you this in... in we don't know each other that well, but I remember reading it and thinking, man, this story is really trying to go there in a way that a lot of stories pretend to, but don't really get there. I mean, the piece got turned into a, another one of the movies, a Marie Berner-based movie called A Private War. What was the reaction to the piece when it first came out among Marie Colvin's friends? Well, they I, were very upset. They were very upset because, of course, the addiction in the PTSD was the dark heart underneath the heroism and it was something that she grappled with that she didn't want to go there you know the term she always uses i have to bear witness bear witness bear witness no one understood character no one cared more about writing what she did she fought that fear but she was once told by a, a psychiatrist that she went to in England, which is streets behind the United States in understanding PTSD. He said to her, you have more PTSD than most men who have been deployed for a decade in a battlefield in war have. And this was just something that was very hard for her to come to grips with. Also, it was hard for her to understand that she was in fact aging, that she couldn't do as a woman in her, I think she was 60 when she died, or yeah. close to that, that she yeah. couldn't do at that age, you know, to scurry through the tunnels of homes when she was warned by her colleagues and her friends in England who were, you know, on the other side of the border, Marie, don't go back in. Her photographer warned her, Marie, this is self-destructive. And I was just so drawn to the layers of that. You know, yes. she died in that clinic in Holmes, showing the world these babies that had been killed by Bashar al-Assad's targets. And it's so interesting you bring her up. Last night I was watching Clarissa Ward's stunning report from Somalia. And, you know, Clarissa, she even looks like the young Marie Coleman. And, you know, there she was with those babies dying in her arms. And I suddenly thought, oh, this is just extraordinary. This is what Marie Coleman did so brilliantly, bringing something that's so compelling to the world that doesn't want to see this. And Marie yes. and Clarissa Ward shared this. Do not look away. You must see what's happening in front of you. And I will say part of the reason I brought it up is because A, I admire the piece so much and B, I had thought about this, you know, when the Russia-Ukraine war broke out and we suddenly found ourselves in the middle of, of a television war again, the amnesiac, easily distracted American public, thankfully, they focus on the bravery of the war correspondents who do this kind of work. That's one thing, the fact that people like Clarissa Ward have gotten their due in the recent months. But also there's the story of Shireen Abu Akhla, who was this longtime 25-year veteran at Al Jazeera, has covered every war in the world and just got killed in May in Gaza by, they think, errant Israeli fire. 
I mean, there have been some suggestions that maybe she was targeted. It's not totally unlike the way that Marie died. It's not exactly the same, but it was enough that it rang my bell and was like, you know, yeah, let's talk about this. And I, well, let me play just really quickly here. This one thing from the movie gets made, A Private War, comes out a few years later, 2018. So it has Rosamund Pike, Academy Award nominee for Gone Girl, playing Marie Colvin. Brilliantly. And I want to play this, a part of the film in which Marie is in Sri Lanka, explaining what being a war correspondent is all about. That trip was the trip in which ultimately she would lose one of her eyes. But this little section here, Rosamund Pike playing Marie Colvin and talking about the kind of nature of covering a hot war. In war zones, parents go to bed at night not knowing if their children will see the morning. That is a measure of fear that I can never feel. But when you're covering a war, you have to go to places where you could be killed or where others are being killed. And put one foot in front of the other, no matter how afraid you are, to make that suffering part of the record. I mean... She sounds so much like how Marie sounded that it's crazy. And when you see the movie, it's amazing that she looks like her, sounds like her, acts like her. And that movie really kind of disappeared without a trace. Do you understand why that is? I mean, it did not make the kind of impact that one would have hoped or one might have expected, given the fact that there was some real star power in it, including Rosamund Pike playing the lead role. Of all the directors I've worked with, Matt Heineman, who had been nominated for an Oscar for his incredible documentary, Cartel Land. Matt poured his heart and soul as the director into this film, made a brilliant film, a brilliant film that we actually worked on very closely together. It was really a collaboration of a whole team of people who wanted to get the nuances of Marie's story. And Matt, more than anyone, because he has spent so many years in war zones as a documentary maker. And it didn't have a distributor and a company behind it that could put the muscle that a studio did. But Rosman was nominated for a Golden Globe. And, you know, there are these truth tellers, and I'm always so drawn to the truth tellers. Marie was a truth teller at immense personal cost. Rosamund Pike researched this so carefully. She spent days and days and weeks and weeks learning everything about Marie, working on her accent. I was on set with them several times. She had a a continuous tape in her ear of that American accent to get that absolutely flawless Marie Colvin voice and sounding so much like her, as you said. The truth tellers are there and that movie is there and I, I believe it will go the distance and people will find it where it is on a streamer. I found it and I commend it to anyone. The last thing I'll do is I'll play one little piece of Marie Colvin herself. Bring us out on a note of total agreement, you and me, Marie, and hopefully we'll be inspiring to a few people because she was a one of a kind. And and it's worth keeping in mind this little story she tells. In 2000, she won the IWMF Courage in Journalism Award and gave a speech. There were a lot of things in the speech that I could play, but I'm going to play this one part where she talks about her experience in East Timor when there was a civil war that she was covering. She tells this story and it's a story that is compelling to listen to, but also has a hopeful moral at the end of it that I think you and I will both at the end will say, damn straight. Let's listen to that. Marie Colvin talking about East Timor. My strongest memory of East Timor um, is walking through that besieged compound and being stared at with fear 
and just people going quiet as I walked through that compound. The compound was besieged by militiamen, uh, machetes, guns. Um, I'd seen them kill people. I'd had to be evacuated from a hotel. They'd killed people next to me. Um, and this compound was likely to be overrun at any moment. No one in it was armed. Uh, and the UN did indeed decide to evacuate. And the idea was to leave these, evacuate local staff, but to leave these 1,500 women and children behind. My journalist colleagues um, made decision to get out on the last flight, so I was there alone, and that's why I was being stared at. I stayed and I reported to anyone I could, CNN, NBC, BBC, American channels, um, that the UN evacuation, if followed through, was a death sentence for these women and children. But three days later, the UN reversed its decision and evacuated not only local staff and me, but all 1,500 women and children. Um, and I thought, journalism can make a difference. Um, it's not in vain. Marie Brenner, your career is kind of a testament to that, that journalism can make a difference too in a different way than the thing that Marie Colvin was talking about there. But I'm really glad to have had you on the show. And congratulations again on the book and on a whole career of doing big, complicated, ambitious, important work. You're a great exemplar to journalists in general, but certainly to many generations of young women who get into this profession and against long odds do incredible shit. And you've really killed it over a lifetime. John, thank you. I'm so overcome hearing that last moment with Marie. Like, I, I'm, I'm just overcome. It, she was extraordinary. I'm so honored even to be thought of in just even in the same paragraph. So thank you, John. Marie Brenner, author of The Desperate Hours, One Hospital's Fight to Save a City on the Pandemic's Front Lines. It's out now. Buy it, read it, and remember, Rebrenner, thanks a lot. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Marie Brenner for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Megan Burney is our producer and engineer. Fonda Mwangi is our researcher and assistant producer and the one and only... The truth, the light, the hope, the promise. Marshall Eisen, he is our executive producer.